I've learned that there is no one prescription and that you do have to address every situation as a unique, you know, a unique challenge. A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to the farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Beef Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts. Contact us for time and labor-saving solutions. Welcome to the Beef Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global beef industry. Welcome to the Beef Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Brandi Buzzard, and it's my pleasure to bring you the trending issues and topics with the best and brightest minds of the beef industry. Today, we have Travis Matier, who is a beef extension educator for the University of Illinois. Matier's extension programming involves nutrition, genetics, reproduction, grazing, and marketing in the areas of cow-calf, stalker, and feedlot production. He's also involved in planning and executing applied research at the University of Illinois off-campus research stations. Matier grew up on a diversified livestock farm in central Illinois, and he continues to be involved in the family farm where they raise purebred Hereford seed stock and black baldy commercial cows in central Illinois. Welcome to the show, Travis. Yeah, thanks for having me. We are really excited to have you here. And uh, it's, it's good to have, um, I don't know that I've been able to do many interviews with extension educators, so I'm excited to have this to hear about applied hands-on work that you're doing with people out in the field. Um, just to get started off with, can you tell us a little bit about your background, um, how you got involved in this career pathway and kind of your journey so far? Yes, absolutely. So I will say, first off, I was blessed to grow up on a farm. I had two hardworking parents. My dad was a high school ag teacher. My mom was a RN or a nurse, and um, they both grew up on a farm. So our, our families had kind of a, a farming legacy, and we definitely grew up. My brothers and my sister and I um, were active in 4-H and FFA. Um, both of my my mom and my dad's family, like I mentioned, were were into farming and agriculture. My mom's dad was a veterinarian, and uh, his son's row crop farmed. And then my my dad's dad, or my my grandpa on my dad's side, was actually more of a mechanical mind, and he had an ag manufacturing shop and made corn reels and did amendments to planters. and And so, I really had a, a diverse upbringing in agriculture and. So growing up, uh, animals were on our farm, and my dad was definitely one of those people that gave us as the uh, our 4-H and FFA projects. He gave us our that responsibility, and he expected us to take ownership and make decisions. And so that was the part of the farm that I really got intrigued with at a young age because it was kind of mine, and it was something that I had to, to own up to and take care of. And so definitely the livestock side intrigued me from, from a young age. And then experiences with my grandpa who was a veterinarian and spending a lot of time with him. And, and, um, that was, that kind of reinforced my, my passion, I think for animal agriculture. Um, and as I got older, I just maybe drew a little more interest in the beef cattle side. Um, it was just maybe kind of where I found uh, myself gravitating towards. And I thought, you know, um, 
our, our family raised some purebred Hereford cattle and we showed, and then we also have commercial cows. And so as I got older, I'm the oldest child. I was the one that was making more of the decisions with the cow herd and was maybe deemed that responsibility. And so I could, that's kind of where I landed. Um, I was active in 4-H and FFA and livestock judging. And so did that and went to Lakeland College and um, was successful there and kind of got recruited by Dr. Doug Parrott to come to the University of Illinois. And I always had my sights set on graduate school. Um, I mentioned spending time with my grandpa who's a veterinarian and not to say that uh, I didn't enjoy that time, but I probably learned through those experiences that that wasn't exactly what I wanted to do, uh, fix everyone's problems per se, but I would rather be on the side of preventing those problems. And so going through school and getting my bachelor's degree and master's degree in ruminant nutrition, my plan all along was to really go into the feed industry and serve as a beef technical consultant. As I graduated with my master's degree, Dr. Parrott came to me again and said, hey, Travis, I think we have an opportunity for you in extension. And so I'd never really thought about it much until that point. And um, I, I guess uh, I, I actually had a, a job opportunity kind of already in, in my pocket to be a beef technical consultant in eastern Iowa. And, and Dr. Parrott kind of grabbed me and pulled me <laughs> away from that and said, hey, uh, you need to be our beef specialist. And so that's how it kind of came about. I've had uh, a long career so far, I, I guess I call it long, but um, started straight out. That's the position that I've held for the last going on 12 years, and I've enjoyed enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, well, I just wanted to keep you in Illinois and not ship you off to Iowa. I feel like that's strategic. Yeah, he was extremely influential and um, something somebody that I'd always uh, looked up to and a great mentor of mine. And so it's hard to say no to him. And uh, with that opportunity, certainly, certainly uh, it's been it's been a blessing as well, giving me the opportunity to really um, expand my roots in Illinois and be a big part of the Illinois cattle industry. That's great. You were talking about the long line of agricultural you know, the agriculturalist that you came from on, on your sides of your family. And um, I was going to ask, like, if your grandfather was a vet, what made you not decide to be a vet? Because it seems like, it seems like veterinarian is almost a, um, like a generational thing almost. It seems like, I I mean, like my, my mother-in-law is a veterinarian and uh, my husband wanted to be a vet, but decided to go a different career path. But another one of his siblings is going to be a veterinarian. And it seems like that kind of, follows the line. I don't know. I have a very small sample size for that, but, um, but you found your passion and, you know, you seem to be doing, they're pretty great. They're in Illinois. You're on what you're 12 or something like that in this Coming role. up on my 12th year, but I, I do have to say that my sister, so she's the youngest of uh, my grandpa's grandchildren and she is a veterinarian. She practices in Missouri right now. She's in <laughs> mixed animal practice. So, yeah, it is. And uh, she's the one that carries on his legacy uh, that way. And, and certainly I think, you know, he instilled passion in animals with a lot of his grandchildren. So he had 13 grandchildren. There's a lot of us that are in livestock business. Um, I kind of didn't mention my, my siblings, but I'm the oldest. And then I also have a, a brother that's a technical consultant in livestock nutrition, uh, another brother that 
deals with feed ingredients and now made a, a, a career shift to farm credit. And then my sister is a veterinarian. So um, absolutely, that's a big part of our family. And I guess if you get us all around the dinner table, inevitably, we're going to be talking about beef cattle or cows or livestock nutrition or animal health. Those topics do come up. That sounds like every Frobo's family function I've ever been to, pretty much. <laughs> cows on agriculture a lot. Yep. Um, you mentioned that 4-H and FFA are, are were important to you and you grew up doing those. And I think that that is such a common thread in so many leaders in the ag industry that they just got their roots there and, and learned about kind of like what career path they wanted to do. I mean, we're just coming off of FFA week at the time of this recording. I mean, can you speak about like what those programs meant to you and maybe how they helped drive you to where you're at today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my dad was a high school ag teacher and the FFA advisor. So I was in FFA for about 16 years, I think. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I participated uh, at a pretty high level. Of course, my dad was pushing us and uh, give, gave us all the opportunity to succeed in FFA. And it was just, um, I think, natural for us and something that I'd grown up around. And um, yeah, it was an extremely successful um venture for me but it was one of those deals where um we we did i grew up without social media so ffa was our our networking <laughs> opportunity right like we went to yeah. uh, career we development events and we got to know everybody yeah. in our section and you went to fairs and and so ffa was really our facebook um to be honest with you we just we knew people all around the state that were in ffa and we developed a lot of relationships i know when i say we i mean uh, my friends and family and my, my brothers and sisters, we just developed a lot of relationships through FFA and, and 4-H and those programs. And those are still, you know, networking and, and relationships that continue to maintain today. So they're, that's a big, big part of getting started in agriculture, I think, is, is not only what you know, but who you know and those relationships that you have. And, and no doubt for me, FFA was that first opportunity to really branch out and network with people and like minds and, and really people that were competitive and driven and wanted to be involved in, in agriculture. So I, I see that as the biggest benefit was just getting to meet so many people at that high school age. I agree um, wholeheartedly. You could, I, like, you couldn't creep on somebody after you met him at a contest. You had to wait till the next one you went to to see him or something like that. I, uh, I totally agree. I, I love that. I wrote that quote down. FFA was our Facebook. If you see that on Twitter later, I'm going to give you credit for it. But that's we're going to see it on Twitter later. Um, so you come from this long line of agriculturalists, um, veterinarians, ag teachers. You didn't mention any pharmacists in your family. But you do have talked about in the past about prescription farming. And so I'm really interested in this phrase. I find that very fascinating. And I am just on the edge of my seat for you to tell me what this means. And is this like precision agriculture? Or is this something that's very different? Yeah. And so when I say um, prescription agriculture here in Illinois, we're dominant corn and soybean production and row crop farming. And there's no doubt that in, in my mind, the trend is shifting away from prescription farming, even in the row crop side. But for the longest time, you were supposed to plant corn at this population and feed it this many pounds of nitrogen and 
and you're going to have an expected yield of this and you harvest it at this uh, this percent moisture and you market it this time of year and so there's just a lot of of things especially and i'm I would say that some of that came from extension and some of that came from the university. We put out crop budgets. We put out um, nitrogen, suggested nitrogen rates or nutrient removals. And it just got to be a, a really strong practice of folks to have that mentality of here, I can look this up and this is how I do it. And I think as private industry came about, they kind of got to doing the same thing um, as I was joining Extension, I think maybe one thing that was good and bad is I didn't have a lot of onboarding training. They kind of restructured our Extension here in Illinois, and then as an afterthought, they said, well, we still need someone that can address our commercial beef cattle production. And again, that's kind of where Dr. Parrott came in and grabbed me and said, hey, we've got this position. But they stuck me at a research farm, and I wasn't involved in it county office uh, or a really an extension structure per se and so it was just up to me to provide resources and, and build a network and be a consultant for cattle producers across the state really kind of just day one so i had to train myself and i think that that actually uh, i'll give some credit to that that i had to learn real quick how to address pretty powerful questions from cattle producers that had a lot of dollars and cents and impact behind them uh, in a quick phone call and it, it forced me to really learn to listen and and ask questions and i wanted you know i was eager i wanted to be successful i was really driven and i knew if i wanted to develop relationships with cattle producers across the state being a cattle producer myself that I needed to give them the right answer. And and sometimes I didn't know the answer and I would have to figure it out. But I had to I had to listen to what they what their goals were, what the problems were. And if I just Google search something and spit it right back out to them, that wasn't going to do me any good. And so it it really I think benefited me at the beginning to not give them a prescription. And it was a situation where Hey, tell me more about what's going on. Let's talk through this situation and let's really help each other diagnose the problem. And the thing that I've learned in extension is I have definitely learned more from talking to producers than they've really probably learned from talking to me. And so I just love the fact that you can get that back and forth and help be a third party and diagnose some of those issues provide a different perspective and help them solve some really, you know, pivotal problems or challenges or overcome hurdles in their operations to allow them to continue to have a chance to be profitable. And I guess what I would get back to then is that I've learned that there is no one prescription and that you do have to address every situation as a unique, you know, a unique challenge and provide a new solution. And so many times as an extension specialist, you get a phone call and someone just wants a quick answer. But when you start to ask them questions, you show that you care, you show that you can, you can engage in conversation and communicate with them. Then they're all of a sudden really open-minded to, oh, maybe, maybe we can address this question um, and, and custom fit it to my farm. And, and I think that's what yields the best results, or at least I have found to yield the best results for, for my clientele. 
I think that's so true what you're talking about listening um, and communicating. So I work in public relations and communications and do a lot of public speaking. And something that I always talk to people when I'm teaching a workshop or something is that we should be listening to understand and not listening to be heard. So listening to be heard is where, you know, you're just waiting till they're done talking so that you can talk. Whereas the example that you just gave a fabulous example of was listening to understand, asking questions, trying to learn more about. And I think that that is applicable in pretty much every career that there is. Like, I don't think that a, a relationship is challenged or um, harmed by listening and communicating better. Yeah. And I mean, I, I can't, ex I don't know if I necessarily need to expand a lot more, but I would say the other thing that really jump started my extension career was the drought of 2012. So I, I joined extension in 2011 and 2012 brought some really tough management challenges to our cattle production in Illinois, just based on drought. And that really drove producers to seek out information. And as a person who was serving as a consultant, someone who provides resources that brought them to me and, and it helped me um, develop those relationships. And so instead of me having to go farm to farm, we were, we were um, experiencing a situation where folks were coming and seeking information. And so I do credit that, that time and that challenge is an opportunity that I was able to capitalize on as someone who was a reliable source for information and could help them navigate some really challenging issues. And so um, a tough time, especially as a cattle owner and, and our family dealing with the same conditions and, and challenges with drought in 2012, um, but still, I think making the most of that situation to develop a network here in Illinois uh, of cattle producers and, and be that reliable source of information to them. It was, it was definitely a benefit to my career. That's quite the baptism by fire. You know, <laughs> yeah. Welcome to the job. Here's a massive drought. Help hundreds of different beef producers who all raise cattle in a different way. Help them be successful. Um, and, and that kind of touches on like the next thing I want to talk about is, you know, you're talking about there's no prescription for, uh, for raising beef cattle, which I totally agree with. There's hundreds of different ways to raise cattle. And my advice is if like something that isn't working exactly right, maybe like try a different way. Um, but knowing that, and having that kind of benchmark, one of your specialties in extension is small pasture Midwest production. Like what kind of specifics go hand in hand in that? Like, how is that going to differ from larger scale grazing and production, like what we have here in the Flint Hills? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think again, getting back to there's no prescription and, and then having to, to kind of listen. So the first thing when I consult with producers in Illinois, if they're having challenges or we're talking about how to best utilize those small acreage pastures, it really has to come back to what their goals are. Are they solely seeking profitability? You know, dollars and cents, this financially has to balance and I need to derive an income off of this. That Then we enter, you know, a different decision tree and thought process than potentially, hey, this is a, this is a legacy piece of land. It's a lifestyle for me. I want to raise my kids in a rural environment and a farm and cattle need to be a part of that. That's kind of the old, the totally opposite end of the spectrum, right? And then there's a lot of folks that fall into, you know, seed stock cattle, um, show cattle or premium 
niche markets like freezer beef. So maybe they're willing to accommodate a little more cost because of that premium market opportunity that they have. Um, and then we definitely got a growing segment of folks that are interested in regenerating land. And so how do we utilize these small pastures, um, but with a focus on making them better pastures and better soil quality. And so those things can live together in some fashion, but they are drastically different goals. And I think as I help producers navigate how to use small pastures, we have to start with what those goals are really before we can can kind of pinpoint what management, what kind of, um, you know, cost structure goes into that stuff. So, and I think, you know, the, the, probably the common piece that I like to talk about is the opportunity for rotational grazing and, and helping manage those plants in a better way. And I think that's pretty, um, you know, that's pretty, uh, it goes over all sectors there. It's something that we can really blanket recommend in certain situations, but the intensity may be different. You may, you know, if your goals are, are maybe to regenerate land, maybe your, your frequency of moves needs to be more or less or based on the forage and not necessarily based on your schedule at, of your off-farm job. Um, profitability, I think it's been one that's been challenging, but in situations where you're trying to, um, produce more with less and we certainly would probably not advise you to go out and purchase the the five thousand dollar seed stock cow that's 1450 pounds if you're just going to feed her fescue grass right so if she's going to live on fescue and you're not going to feed her much and you want her to wean a big calf then there's some genetic decisions that have to be made and so all of those, I think there is a lot of decisions that, that producers have to make, but it starts with those goals. And then once we know those goals, then we can kind of custom fit what kind of cattle you need, how much fencing and infrastructure you need, what labor requirements will be involved, you know, what kind of uh, herd health practices you're going to use and invest in. Um, and, and, it, and the list can go on, but those, those are definitely conversations I think that in Midwestern cattle production, and especially as small pastures, it, it's sometimes challenging to to maybe see an article in Drovers or watch a, a YouTube video or see a podcast and say, I'm going to do it exactly that way because you may have 10 acres here, 40 acres over there. And um, I kind of joke that the central Illinois cattle disease is chasing cows and hauling cows and, and checking cows at different pastures. But we we do have land that's only suitable for cattle it's not all flat and black tillable soil but it just doesn't come in a in a big volume of acres it's kind of like you were reading my mind because you brought up rotational grazing and i wanted to ask you about that is there um is there a lot of rotational grazing happening in you know in your area in the midwest um, because you just mentioned there's a lot of flatter really good soil and land for raising crops so i, I mean i'm just curious is there a lot of rotational grazing there um, is it pretty intensive or do you know, like, what's the grass type there? Because I mean, obviously I live in Kansas, you live in Illinois, there's massive differences between these two places. Absolutely. So I would say the predominant forage species in most Illinois pastures is fescue. If you get to the Northern part of the state, that changes a little bit, but I was actually in a, on a farm visit last summer on right around the I-80 corridor 
and we were going through pastures and this producer had had a nice mixed forage base in his pasture. He said, what's that? I said, that's fescue. <laughs> he said, we've never had fescue up here. But unfortunately, yes, fescue is a base forage. And I, I, I guess I should pause and say, well, not unfortunately, because there is I definitely some say, fall grazing. Because that's what's all of my house. <laughs> yeah. And, it, and it's definitely proliferated. And there's the folks that manage fescue and use stockpile grazing and, and really, really know how to handle fescue. Um, it's a successful forage and they can make make it work right um but folks that abuse it and maybe don't know how to manage it it does pose some health risks to cattle the endophyte um is definitely something that cattle fight especially in the summertime with with the with the issues with vasoconstriction and reduced blood flow and so if we're confounding animal health issues by poor pasture management and presence of that endophyte infected fescue there's no doubt that we can impact profitability in a negative way and so yes i think rotational grazing it is a big component of managing fescue and managing really any pasture and so for producers in central illinois it it is something that i think that they're definitely deploying and investigating not all pastures are that prototypical paddock setup with water available to everything but i'll i'll testify even in my own case where we have some rental pastures on our farm you know gear drills and poly wire and just maybe sectioning pastures off or maybe fencing them off instead of fencing them on if you've got limited water resources and still allowing that pasture to rest i think it, it can be as simple as a solar charger, you know, portable posts and poly wire and helping rest certain pasture areas. And I think that's going on in a big way. And it all comes back to the incentive to extend the grazing season. We are blessed in Illinois to have abundant feed resources, but they still cost money. Right. They're right. still expensive. They are close though. They're right there. <laughs> um, yeah. That's, that's interesting. You were, I'm just we are very big on rotational grazing here at our ranch. And we started out with doing, I guess, I don't know what you call the opposite. So it was rotational grazing. We just turned them out on a big pasture that we had leased. And there, that was yeah. Continuous stock grazing. Yeah. Continuous. Yeah. Continuous grazing. Thank you. I write for a living. Can you tell? I couldn't think of the word continuous. Um, <laughs> we, uh, we were doing that. And so now we have switched to rotational grazing, um, not only for our own benefit, but it's obviously it's really benefiting the root systems and the overall soil health. And we've noticed a difference um, because of the drought this year, we had a little bit of, we've had to sacrifice some of the pastures at our own house because we, we had to bring the cows home early because we, even though we stockpiled the fescue, we ran out. But um, I think that's really interesting. You're talking about how it doesn't have to be a really like um, cost intensive spend to do it. You can just run a hot wire and cross fence your, your main pasture. And as long as your cows are not jerks and are respectful, you're probably going to be okay, you know, with fencing off that section. And I think that that's, I feel like when we were first talking about rotational grazing, I was just kind of overwhelmed. I thought we're gonna have to move them all the time. How do we do this? We don't have 57 different lots to put them in. And it does have increased management but it's not as challenging as I had thought it would be. And so I thought, I, th I think that's just something that I hope people take away from this conversation that you and I are having is that, you know, you can implement this. It's not going to be super cost intensive. 
it's not, it's going to take a little bit more time, but it shouldn't be just some big, scary, daunting thing. So I'm really glad that you elaborated on that. Yeah. And I totally agree. And one thing to follow up with is usually when folks just, even if it's just split in a pasture, they see some benefit and then they start to say, well, maybe if I split it again, or if I had another paddock, maybe I could see better results. And so it is, you know, seeing the benefits of rotational grazing or, or just at least resting forages, I think is, is something that can cascade and build on itself. And so, yep, doesn't have to be uh, an RCS project and a bunch of money and, and fence building. It can be pretty simple. And I think then you can evolve it on your own and figure out, okay, maybe if I had a water point at the back of the pasture, that would allow me to use that area better. And then you look at investing in infrastructure, but just starting out, yep, it can be very simple. And and something that's, I think, easily deployable. Yeah, I like that. Easily deployable. Um, so we're talking about grazing. There's not a lot probably right now, I'm guessing. And first day of March, I've never been so happy to see March. I just, I despise February. Like, just, it's it's like the August <laughs> of winter. Um, so we're not doing a lot of rotational grazing now where I'm at. But corn stock grazing is something that you have quite a bit of experience in. And I know that that's really prevalent here. And I'm assuming since you have all those feed resources, you were just talking about in Illinois, that it's pretty prevalent there. Um, do you, I mean, do you have to encourage people to graze corn stalks there? Is that pretty well? Everybody knows to do that. I mean, tell, just tell me more about that and your experience with getting that going and, and I guess conversations you have with producers there. Because to me, I, I think people are, pretty well entrenched in that in Illinois. Yeah. Well, and uh, and I wish I could say with absolute 100% certainty that I agree with that 100%. Unfortunately, I think there's a lot of folks in Illinois that derive most of their income from corn and soybeans and if they are in a fall tillage program, they may they may look aside from corn stock grazing. But most of our cattle producers in Illinois that are row crop farmers see the benefit of reducing feed costs, extending the grazing season, and getting animals back on their row crop land that corn, that corn stock grazing is something that they're definitely, um, you know, utilizing. Um, so I've pushed corn stock grazing uh, from day one, and it's definitely, I think, our low-hanging fruit in Illinois. Yes, we do have some deep soils, and if you have a water location or if, if you're hauling a little bit of feed to them as a supplement or around the mineral feeder, you can see the cows pug a field a little bit when it gets wet. We've done research, though to show that those high traffic areas really um, compaction can be relieved with one tillage pass and in a large way just general corn stock grazing you're not going to see compaction um, negative impacts from compaction and so we've got the research uh, a lot of that research has been done uh, dan shike and myself uh, got research projects at dudley smith farm and that's probably some of our deepest darkest soils in the central portion of the state and they tend to be wet and so if we can prove that there's not compaction issues and corn stock grazing <laughs> at that farm uh, i feel really certain that most areas of illinois where we do corn stock graze we're not seeing negative issues i think and we've even seen maybe some benefits from reducing some of that residue um, if we're going back in with maybe corn on corn. And so there's some other potential benefits. And I think more and more research is coming out about 
integrating livestock into row crop production and kind of reinvigorating the land that way. And so definitely having some livestock on corn stock fields, I think makes sense. But, you know, cows don't eat everything that's there. So corn stock grazing is just, I think, a no brainer because the cows eat some remainder of the corn, the corn husk. They're not really eating much leaf and they definitely don't eat the stock. And so some people get concerned about, well, if they're we're going to have cows out there. They're going to take everything off and a lot of removal. And that's just not the case. If you're, if you're grazing cattle, especially in the fall and early winter period, um, you're just not going to have that. So I think um, maybe some issues if you do a total harvest with a mechanical or you're processing some of your stocks with a chopping corn head and things like that, there are situations where you have to be careful of maybe removing too much or, having too much degradation where you're uncovering the soil but in a large way in illinois cornstalk grazing is a great great opportunity i mean i completely agree even here in i think it's a great opportunity in southeast kansas as well <laughs> um do you um are there any other types of i mean i know that you can graze other residues is any of that in happening in illinois or in the midwest areas that you know of is it pretty isolated to corn I mean, I think that's like the most popular one, but I am not an expert on that. So, yeah. So, I mean, we're just so dominant by corn and soybean production and there's not a ton of feed value in soybean stubble or residue. Doesn't mean that you can't stage a cow out there and she can't eat some waterways off and things like that for a little while. Um, but in a large way, corn stocks is a much more valuable grazing resource, um, I guess one other thing is in Illinois, we have producers that will bale corn stalks and mechanically harvest corn stalks. And so um, straw is harder to come by. So we're even used corn stalks for bedding. A lot of our you know, feedlot operators, corn stalks is the most readily available bedding if they've got a bed pack barn or even folks that are calving cows. And uh, you just mentioned here we are March 1st. Well, in Illinois, that means we're probably dealing with some mud. And so having a few corn stalk bales uh, to keep keep cows out of the mud's not a bad thing either. So there's definitely opportunities there. I think in the mechanical harvest side, we've investigated from a research standpoint, some alternative methods too. So we've harvested corn stalks after a high moisture corn harvest. We've actually windrowed them and chopped and bagged them. And, and that was a neat project that we did at the ore center because it, it actually, we were able to get those corn stalks to ensile in a plastic silo bag. Um, like you would packing in corn silage, but they're still corn stalks, you know, so the nutrient value is going to test like a corn stalk, you would imagine it too. So four or 5% crude protein, pretty moderate energy level. Um, but we were able to reduce the waste. So many of our cattle producers that maybe feed stocks, they corn stalks, they complain about the waste. Well, the cows only eat two thirds of the bale. I have a third of the bale that's re a remainder and it's waste. And that is, you know, that's pretty common, but some of them move the bale feeder and utilize that for bedding. Uh, some folks chop and grind that, uh, or I should say just use like a tub grinder and grind those stocks and incorporate them into a TMR so they have less waste. But I think going forward, um, it doesn't take uh, a lot of time and energy and research to figure out that hay prices are getting higher. You can go on Facebook Marketplace and see that, oh no, Every bale of hay is $80 a bale, and it used to be $35 or $40 a bale. And so utilizing these alternative uh, crop residues or alternative forages, I think, is going to be a growing component 
of how we feed a beef cow, especially in the Midwest. Yeah, it's interesting that you were talking about the using the corn stalks for bedding because um, my in-laws, they have one of those, like, uh, I don't know the exact term you used, but they finish cattle in a barn for part of the winter and they do use the corn stalks for bed pack. And my, husband, um, my father-in-law, he also bales a lot of corn stalks for other people. So there's definitely ways to get as much value as possible out of every part of the plant and the agricultural production process, which I think speaks a lot to the efficiency and the resourcefulness, not only of our, of our industry as a whole, but just of farmers and ranchers. And so you brought us up on this semi-confinement discussion topic. Um, I'm guessing there is a little bit more of that where you're located, maybe due to two things, um, space and then also precipitation. You mentioned mud. I know what, I feel your muddy pain. It is muddy at my house. Like November through May, it is muddy. And I don't complain. I try not to complain about mud because it means we have moisture. And in July and August, I would love to have mud. So um, what kind of benefits and drawbacks do you, in your experience, have you seen with like semi-confinement of cattle? Is that something where it's a winter only thing? Spring, like what can you share with us about that? Because um, I'm sure some of our listeners don't have that experience. Yeah, absolutely. So to set the stage and you did it well, is um, here in the Midwest, we do have really high land prices. We've had encroachment from row crop, soybean, corn production into our hay and pasture areas. And so it's just, it's a challenge at times to expand a beef cow herd or maintain cow numbers without looking at some alternative ways of doing that. So I would say in the Midwest and even you get up into the the, the Northern Plains, you know, housing cows in a dry lot or a, a barnyard uh, is not uncommon. That's not, you know, that's a traditional practice, especially in t- t- times of forage dormancy. I think what we're seeing, though, is producers start to evolve and try to innovate with using structures, uh, you know, some different roof designs and building designs to house cows for longer periods of time. And so whether we're using, you know, like I say, a structure or a dry lot, we're just extending the period of time where those cows are in some kind of semi-confinement area. Um, like, a, like we've already discussed though, we may have corn residue or crop residue to graze. We may have cover crop opportunities on our tillable land. We can still get grazing days into the year. They may just not be that traditional summer pasture type of grazing days. And so in in Illinois, uh, we've we've done some research at the Ore Center again with looking at extended dry lot housing of beef cows. And what we can say is that it, it you can make it work. And there's definitely other research centers across the United States that have done extended dry lot cow housing research. And I think they would all say you can make it work. It's just a different management scheme. There's different sets of challenges. Um, Things that we've learned uh, are we we can really control that cow performance. And so a TMR ration delivered to that cow, we know exactly what's going on there. Uh, our, our nutrition is is good, so cow weights and body condition scores are maintained. We've got good milk production, and we're not dealing with maybe that drought scenario or limited forage availability because Mother Nature has restricted us. We do probably see a little more lameness, though, and I think it's something that um, cattle producers are definitely working with their veterinarians pretty closely on preventative medicine and controlling scours and things like that if we're calving and confinement, making sure that there is plenty of clean 
clean bedding and good ventilation in those bars. So there are some things to consider there. I think one of the most interesting things that we've gathered, though, is there are some changes in behavior, especially in the calves. We originally thought, hey, let's keep these calves with the cows in confinement. Let's fence line wean them. And they're going to wean easy because they're already there. That's their life. They've been in this system. And we did, and, and that hypothesis, for the most part, came true. But then we transported those calves to a new location, uh, you know, to our feedlot facilities on campus instead of that or beef research cow-calf farm. And then we saw some behavioral stress there when we moved them. And it would make sense, I guess, as we look at it in retrospect, that if you change that animal's environment and you and you maybe they haven't been uh, accustomed to that change that there'll be some behavioral stress. But so there's, there's some things there that maybe we didn't foresee, but probably make sense. Um, so uh, those calves have never been more than about 10 feet from their mother, you know, or maybe 20 or 30 feet. So they just never broke that bond. Uh, the cows out on pasture, especially in drought years, those calves can almost wean themselves. Right. And so even if we just did a fence line wean, um, Again, those calves have been off on their own. They've been kind of weaned from their mother just based on the environment. So there are some things that to consider there. Um, one other uh, venture that we've had this past summer was to, to talk with producers that are doing this. So early adopters of these alternative systems. So we visited 20 different farms across the state of Illinois and interviewed producers and we found out you know that most most of them not keeping cows in there 365 days a year they're kicking them out to crop residue um, or or cover crops or some pasture but they've definitely learned how to make that system work and so i'll just leave it at that i think that's a great conclusion that it can work um, and it depends on what you're comparing it to if you're comparing it to an extensive system of long-time owned acres or lower pasture rent costs, it's probably not the most economical. But in in certain, uh, I guess, certain areas of the United States where you have limited land, you have higher land costs, uh, it can be an opportunity for you to expand the cow herd or maintain your cow numbers. It's just another one of those hundreds of different ways to to do it. Um, yeah. It's a, and I just have to imagine that. I mean, the more you can keep, like right now, if I had more dry lot space at our house, well, dry lot is a relative term. It's not really dry, but if we had more lot space, like we wouldn't have them on the pasture. We would be able to really rest that pasture that we're now sacrificing if we had a little bit more space to keep them a little bit more semi-confined because, you know, then they wouldn't be on the grass all the time. So that's definitely got to, I would imagine, got to be a big benefit is that you can, they're not out there chopping up the ground with their with their feet, with their pointy feet, messing up the root systems and things like that, and nubbing down the grass. Like we've started to get a little bit of grass coming up here, but it's not getting very long before they get to it. But they uh, they just don't have anywhere to go because they're again like we're sacrificing. So that that's got to be another benefit, I would imagine. Yeah, and I would say yeah, dead on. Mud is an issue, and so if you're trying to calve cows in mud or house cows where they're standing hock deep in mud, then you know an alternative housing system. Uh, putting them in a hoop barn or under a, a monoslope roof or in even a concrete dry lot, you're going to have better cow performance. You're going to have better results. So again, it comes back to what you're comparing it to as to whether it'll work. But I, I do think that it's, it, it's something that producers can use um, to make sure that they uh, have an opportunity for profit and, and an opportunity to continue to maintain their cow numbers. 
Yeah. And the nice thing is that nothing has to be forever, right? You could do it for two years to get, you know, to be a chapter in the production story. And then if you don't need it the third year, then you don't do it. You can always go back to it. I think that's one of the great things about the flexibility of our, of our industry is being able to change and pivot so easily. Um, so that's honestly, that's, you've, we've kind of gone full circle here. We've talked about grazing and semi-confinement and prescription farming. You know, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want to maybe want to not get off your chest, but you, you know what I'm, you know what I'm getting at? No, I think the the other thing, and this would kind of be another area, but um, I do think there is opportunity for cover crops. So we do have those really productive soils in Illinois. And so how can you incorporate cover crops into a system where you can extend your grazing season? Um, are there opportunities to then maybe utilize manure? Uh, we've definitely seen some of these folks that are maybe even have a building that they house cows in for part of the year. They They're big into cover crops. It gives them an opportunity to make a lot of forage, gives them an opportunity to utilize the manure that they produce. And um, and unfortunately, I think we've got growing, at least in our state, we've got growing uh, restrictions from EPA and, and regulation standpoint that are you know, making it challenging. So making sure that producers are utilizing their nutrients, applying them at the right time and controlling nutrients, I think is, is important as well. And cover crops are definitely going to come in to play there. So uh, I think there's a big opportunity as we see hay acres decline, hay price rise for our diversified farmers that have row crop acres and cattle or livestock to utilize cover crops in a big way. Yeah, definitely really good point there that, I mean, we can, again, we can just make different things work in, in different ma manners to get through the next growing cycle, next production cycle. It's time for our famous three. So these last questions, these are, I, I don't call them rapid fire because I don't, they don't come out really fast, but these are the standard questions we ask every guest, um, our exit questions. So the first one is, what is your favorite beef related book or resource? Yeah, I don't read a lot of books, but I do read a lot, whether it's on my phone, online, or trade pub publications. Um, I do try to listen to podcasts, too. So, um, you know, BCI, Cattle Chat, Working Cows, um, those are a few of my favorites. I do like to push myself to read um, about things that maybe are a little unconventional to me. Uh, I've kind of got into reading more about um Bonsma, uh, evaluation of cattle phenotypically. Um, I think that's kind of a neat area to discover. And then uh, I do I do like to read the Stockman Grass Farmer. It's a paper that I subscribe to that kind of gives me a little different perspective and uh, kind of expand my knowledge base there. That's good. We like hearing people that that he, people listen to podcasts and uh, <laughs> the BCI Cattle Chat is definitely another good one. Um, okay, so. What is a book or resource not related to the beef industry that you are currently reading or consuming? Yeah. So again, don't read a lot of books per se. Uh, and I, I guess I would say to answer this question, um, I have to prove to my fiance that sometimes I am a normal person and that I don't just <laughs> talk about beef cows. So because it's my job and a little bit my passion and, and I definitely help, uh, manage our herd and spend a lot of time on the weekends with our cows and mornings and evenings before and after work is probably important that I prove 
to her that I'm a normal person. So uh, I like to watch college basketball. I'm getting excited for March Madness that's coming up. Um, I don't know if you're a football fan or not, but I highly recommend the New Heights podcast with the Kelsey brothers. Okay. Even if you're not a Philly or a Chiefs fan, it's really, really good. Um, so if you're looking for something else, sports related once March Madness is over, that's really good. Um, okay, great answers. And then so the last one is what trait do you find admirable in other people's that in other people that has helped them reach success? Yeah, I don't know if it's just one trait. Um, again, I'm pretty guilty of using beef cattle analogies. And if I'm going to pick out a bull or something, I'm not just going to look for one trait. But I think to be successful, obviously, it takes a lot. And uh, but I do think having a lot of passion, being driven and, and engaged. I think in our society today, you have to, to spend the time to be engaged in what you're doing. Um, there's a lot of ways to get distracted. But if you're passionate, you're driven, I think being engaged kind of is that next piece to the puzzle and, and that'll lead to success. I wholeheartedly agree, as do probably many of our listeners as well, because if you're going to be involved in the beef industry, you have to love it because it's very, it's very challenging and trying at times. For sure. Well, that is all we have for today for you. Thank you again for joining us um, on the Beef Podcast Show. If people want to learn more about you or the work you do or find you maybe on social media, do you have any profiles that they can follow that you want to share with us? Yeah, I don't have them written down, but absolutely. So um, because I work for the University of Illinois Extension, you can search our SAF listing and find my contact inf information there. Um, yes, I'm uh, on social media um, and, and folks can find me there. But uh, yeah, I'd, I'd be glad to, to network and be a resource for cattle producers uh, no matter where they're at. Great. Well, you heard it, folks. You can look him up on the University of Illinois system and find him on social media. Thank you, Travis, for joining us on the Beef Podcast Show. And to our audience, we look forward to talking to you next week. Thank you.